Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Thin Air podcast. Um, the first one in a while. Uh, it is March 12th, 2013, and uh, just stepped outside. Huxy went down for a nap, and uh, back out in the garden. It's a snowy March uh, afternoon. We, we kind of had a big storm roll by and miss us entirely. They, they canceled a bunch of things in town and then we didn't even get so much as an inch. And then uh, last night kind of snowed a bit, but it's it's been doing this thing where it snows and then it melts the next day. So I'm bundled up with my poncho under my jacket and Kayla's uh, winter hat on. So I think I look fairly ridiculous. And the fact that I'm now pacing around talking to myself... Uh, Hopefully somebody gets to walk by the alley and enjoy this awkward moment that I can present. <laughs> uh, yeah, so here we are back in the garden. It's It's been a while, and I think the thing that really prompted me to get out here again, yammering away, is just recently having some great conversations with an old friend and um, kind of passing along some of the uh, earlier podcasts, which I I don't... I've never gone out of my way to share, but uh, he encouraged me that it was something valuable and it's something I enjoy. So it kind of made me uh, nostalgic for the days of sitting around and having the brain flow come. So here we are. We'll see if it works as well when it's being forced (laughs) a little bit. But um, yeah, uh, there's there's a couple things that I that I had in mind to to jaw about and. I think, let's see, I guess, I guess I'll just start with um, kind of an appraisal of where I'm at now uh, co- compared to two years ago when those earlier podcasts were recorded, which is really kind of funny, uh, knowing that someone else was listening to them, I, uh, I re-listened to some of those earlier ones, and uh, at that time I was, the issues that were most presently, or uh, most present were kind of dealing with this idea of uh, engagement versus unengagement in the whole human uh, race and, uh, you know, why do anything at all, those types of ideas that was coming from a point in time where I was very idle and had fairly limited responsibility. Uh, Now I, you know, have a a a one-and-a-half-year-old son who is just absolutely awesome, but he is definitely like a center of my world, whereas before... You know, <laughs> I was the center, or my my here was the center. Um, but, uh, yeah, so this idea of engagement and disengagement, at the time it was very conceptual for me. It was this whole idea of, you know, I'm sitting here in the dirt talking to myself, and what is the thing I should be doing? And in reasoning through that, or, you know, uh, using some of these philosophical concepts like the Tao and these other things that I enjoy and have uh, really taken, taken, um, or put stock in, uh, I kind of adopted that just kind of go with the flow attitude. And sure enough, within a couple months, I got swept up in a, in a pretty strong current that has really been the stream I've, I was, I've been swimming in for the last two years, which is, Part of the reason why my creativity has been not directed towards these philosophical pursuits or artwork or um, 
things like that, but uh, really been directed towards this very human-centric uh, project of, of engagement, which kind of surprises me uh, that, I, that I have gone that far in the pendulum swinging. Um, I've been working with a couple uh, good friends, and we've, we've grown a team of about 10 people now working on a website called communityfunded.com. Check it out. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're really set out to do some big things and uh, reconnect the way that we use resources and, and this big, lofty, grandiose idea. So that's kind of where I wanted to start, was kind of figuring out how I got where I am and if, uh, if the philosophy that I was expounding in the first podcast, if I still believe it, if I still agree with it, um, I guess those are my questions, uh, to myself right now. And I guess to put in a little bit of context, a little bit of refresh here is that, uh, at the time, you know, I'm looking at the, at the exact same spot that I was sitting, drawing patterns in the dirt, and now it's all covered over with, uh, leaves and, and debris and pieces of plastic from the greenhouse roof, uh, very much a disheveled mess from, uh, it is winter time, but my attention has not been so much on, on gardening and, and being present in that way, but this, but this project, and at that time, you know, drawing pictures in the dirt and wondering, you know, what is it that I should be doing, and finding this kind of excuse almost that what I was doing was okay because I, I wasn't forcing the situation in uh, in listening to those old podcasts, it's funny because I dance around this whole concept without actually putting a word on it, which is uh, something that is called in Japanese Wu Wei, and it kind of comes out of this uh, Zen uh, mindset that uh, Wu Wei can be called non-action, it can be called um, the gentle way, actually that's uh, Judo is the gentle way, I believe, it's um, all all part and parcel, all family members of the same kind of philosophy. Um, Wu Wei, my, my favorite translation of it is uh, non-forcing, not forcing, not so much non-action. And I think that's that probably is the, the realization, I guess, if any, that I could dig out of uh, what I've experienced the last two years of getting really entangled and really involved in, uh, in the affairs of of humanity, as opposed from this just detached bystander who can sit, bystander who could sit in the dirt and wax metaph metaphysical, but this concept of Wu Wei is almost uh, the more powerful uh, piece to be taken from those Taoist concepts. It's not so much uh, just go with the flow and uh, do nothing, as much as it is do what you are predisposed to do without forcing situations. So to me, what that has meant is when things have come up, I, I let myself, I let that gravity pull me and I don't fight it and I don't push it. Um, and in that way, I think uh, it's hard to know whether that, you know, in the same way that my, my whole thing about choices, that uh, choices don't exist in the present because it's only an appraisal of the past, in the same way, kind of this this non-forcing, this, um, this going with the flow, it's hard to even say or know that you're doing it because there's no other it that you're doing. So it's not as if I can compare the events of the last uh, year, you know, the last two years, year and a half, and compare what, what has happened to what could have happened had I forced more situations or had I done this or that. Like, it's the same problem, that same choice problem. 
the same uh, creating of duality. So even in this little thought exercise that I'm having right now, I'm kind of already um, in my little twine ball of philosophy, uh, already breaking the rules, which is just the way it works, I guess. But um, this this non-forcing, I think, is is powerful in that um, when situations come up that that you know get your blood going and get your uh, get your pulse up and you you get that kind of fight or flight response um, the non-forcing is kind of the keeping yourself in the center so you're not you're not fighting against the situation you're not running from the situation and trying to and find a better one you're really kind of sticking it out and I think that uh, that has been just sort of the way and and really less intentional than just kind of uh, natural, I guess. Uh, I, I don't know. It's hard for me to really know how much I, uh, in, a, in any given moment, am really toting around all these philosophical concepts and how much really is just this underlying concept that we are the people who we are and we're doing the things that we're going to do. And um, so that's, I don't know, that's... I don't want to go too far into this because it's really more of this personal kind of thinking through life and part of this is just you know being out here again and being nostalgic and a little saddened uh, for the the life the life once lived of uh, you know real simplicity minimal responsibility it's just part of, of growing up I guess of getting older and and being uh, progressively engaged and beautifully so I guess is um, it's funny when I think back to those early podcasts, I see it almost as a as a metaphor for that whole year in the garden that it was all these seeds that were being planted in this kind of fresh soil and kind of these uh philosophies that hadn't really done anything yet um now being more in practice with people in a in a world in a situation and and I have really no expectations for what you know that website is going to do it's more the the willingness to um, not look back at what I had and and fight to keep it and not look ahead at what I want out of this and fight to get that, but the uh, enjoyment of the process. And so, you know, I I don't want to make this too much of a self-centered, this, these are all the projects I'm working on, as much as uh, now having having gone from a, a pre-state of thinking through the, act, through the actual process of doing, um, what I would offer, if anything, is the, is the, uh, the notion that, I mean, like, what I'm doing right now is exactly what I am doing. And there was no, there was no uh, other way to do it, and that is true of you and anyone else. And this idea that uh, rather than rather than clinging or pushing, uh, you know, those are really two sides of the same mentality. You know, the clinging to what you have and the pushing to get what you want. It's the fear and the desire that are constantly these uh, recurring themes. Um, but to feel good about what you're doing, even when it is a, a pain in the arse, I think that's really the bottom line is... You know, when I was sitting in this greenhouse all the time, uh, it was great, and I might have been bored more often than not, but it was very just easy and, and easily satisfying, and now uh, the satisfaction is a little bit more hard-fought because the, the daily activities are so much more demanding, and, 
but at the same time, it is no more or less uh, satisfying when approached with the same the same mindset. So again, if I'm if I'm trying to say anything here, it's just to embrace the thing that you're doing, even if it's the even if it's not the thing that you want to be doing, or even if you don't enjoy the thing that you're doing. Um, just enjoy enjoy it in its moment in what it is and i'm not saying that if you if you're working a horrible job and you hate it and you're you know that you just need to buckle up and <laughs> suck it up and uh do that for the rest of your life but it is this idea that if you're if you're not forcing and you're not clinging that you will find you will continually find the places that you want to be and i don't know if that's uh true of of the inverse, because part of what I'm saying here is that you're going to do what you're going to do, and if what you normally do is clinging and pulling, then um, you're still going to end up in, in just that that place. Um, but it's it's your uh, it's your outlook and your appraisal of it that makes you either happy or miserable, <laughs> or somewhere in between. I don't know. I'm not really trying to bring this up with any kind of a point, other than just um, talking through it. Uh, I can, I can let that go now. I just, I felt that, um, you know, coming back out here after two years that it was, it, it was, um, worth this reappraisal of the situation and just kind of sharing that so that it's clear that whereas I was this, uh, beatnik philosopher sitting in the dirt and sharing these things that now I'm, uh, I'm a beatnik businessman, <laughs> I guess. Uh, I don't even know, but, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so that's the first little little piece, and uh, I'll just let that go. And the next little piece that I wanted to to bring up and just kind of explore um, is a concept I've I've been increasingly thinking about lately that has come from a number of experiences uh, with other people, and it ties it, it ties into everything really. It ties into the conversation that I was just having with myself about uh, where I'm at, but. Uh, yeah, so here we go. I'm gonna just uh, gonna shoot for it here. Um, is this idea that has been recurring uh, pretty much forever in in my life, and I think in all of our lives. Uh, see if you agree. Um, the the idea of other people and other beliefs and trying to make sense of what that what it means that we're in this world where, uh, you know, while a lot of people might agree on some things, and there's groups of people that feel different ways that essentially each person has their own opinion and uh, their own view of the world. And I've kind of talked about this in previous podcasts, this whole idea that we really create our own um, reality from the, you know, experiences that we have. But taking that a step further, um, how do we deal with a world in which it appears, you know, from that line of thinking that there is no uh, fundamental truth or there is no real answer other than the one that you're going to pick. Um, and let's see, I want to bring this back because I have some cool analogies and some just interesting little pieces of uh, food for thought. Uh, part of this is the frustration that, um, that comes up to people where they, they have information that they feel is really worth something, that is really awesome, um, that is informing them in ways that they're that inspires them and they feel they want to, or any of us want to share that. And I think that could be, you know, religious uh, type experiences and people, 
you know, going to, to, to church with their friends and singing and experiencing and going through these rituals and, and enjoying that and wanting to share it. Or, you know, the young uh, <laughs> half-baked philosopher reading new things and wanting their, you know, aging parents to, to swing with it in the same way and coming up against these walls. And I guess that's where, where this, this line of thinking kind of comes from is, um, you know, even taking this podcast as an example, uh, these, these ideas and things that I've come across that I like and, you know, have, have been sharing, uh, I've, I've always tried to approach it in this, uh, you know, it's not anything that you need. This is very much inspired by, uh, people like Alan Watts and, uh, Krishna Murti and uh, even Joseph Campbell to some extent. Well, he was a little pushy with some of his stuff, but uh, <laughs> I mean that's the whole idea here: is that when you have something good, how do you not push it on people? How do you not uh, feel like they're missing out if they don't get this thing? And whenever I've had conversations like that that stem from this sort of you know intellectual one-upmanship and you know what what are your sources and you know this and that. Uh, especially um, early on with friends who grew up in a similar way, and then I went my way into uh, philosophy and and experiences in uh, different places, and a lot of my my contemporaries uh, went into these more uh, formalized systems, and both of us, uh, you know, in those in those early days of the of the separation. You know, it's hard not to try and pull, you know, tug and pull each other into, you know, you know, come with me, you know, come with me, you know, and, and even though it's, uh, it's very much for the other person's interest, you know, in your mind, uh, it still becomes combative. And uh, even, even beyond that, I, I think of friends that I've talked to where they, they talk, again, about, you know, their parents who are of a completely different worldview, a more uh, conservative worldview that's really based on these, uh, you know, religious traditions and just unwilling to investigate or look at new knowledge. And, uh, and so that, that's where I'm, I'm coming at this from. And I want to muse through that a little bit because as I've, as I've kind of stated here, um, even though you, you'll definitely notice in my language that even though I'm saying one thing, my, uh, my tone and the way I use words often betrays that, you know, when I talk about, you know, if you're of the Christian persuasion and this whole, you know, drawing li- lines in the sand. And that's, I, uh, I wish I wasn't so prone to doing that. I think it's just, an, again, this natural thing of, of uh, you know, knowing and loving people and wanting them to have something that you have. Uh, as Alan Watts would put it, uh, you know, anyone who comes on and tries to tell you that they have something that you don't, that you need, is like someone who comes around and picks your pocket and tries to sell you your own watch back to you. Um, but I digress. So, so there's the, there's the concept. There's the, uh, the question that I'm going to set about just musing through here. You know, if you're, uh, if you're this, this thinker who's discovered all these great things and you have a, a parent or a friend or a, a spouse even who is of a different mindset, uh, how, do you, how do you deal with that? How do you, um, you know, what's the best course of action? What's the, the woo way of this situation, the, the non-forcing? And uh, first of all, 
I guess, and this is just, I'm totally musing through this, you know, off the cuff, so I don't, I don't even know if what I'm going to say is, is what I agree with until I say it and think about it. Uh, but, you know, the, the first thing I would say is in that kind of situation, you know, what is the goal? Um, and if the goal is truly that you feel that you have something that the other person would benefit from, because um, I really think that's the heart of it. I don't think most people go out of their way just to... I'm sure some people do, but I don't think most people are going out of their way just to piss other people off and to, you know, say you're wrong. I mean, I think that there's, there might be a couple different types of people. Some people get an ego boost, you know, everyone really gets an ego boost out of, out of convincing someone from a, from a line of thought to a new line of thought. And I think there's definitely people like that, but the situation I'm talking about is more this close relationship and what's the goal of trying to convince somebody otherwise other than you know you you have their interests in mind you want them to be privy to this to these feelings that you have in this experience that you that you have uh through the information and if the information you know it's a it's a round peg trying to fit, fit through a square hole you know what is the goal and for my thinking in this sense if if that forcing of the peg is going to be uncomfortable, then you're already betraying the primary, uh, the primary objective here, which is to enlighten and to in, enrich, I think. That is the, the idea that most of us have when we, when we think about our, you know, the people around us, is we want to enrich them. And um, so I, I think that that's, that's part of it, is that realizing that the forcing because that's what it really comes down to, this, this wu-wei. The opposite of that is this kind of this forcing, this uh, pushing of concepts, this uh, pushing of situations, and these uh, bringing out of uh, little, little um, not, not so much arguments as much as these dialogues that try to, you know, the, the, it's two people and they're both trying to convert the other one. And um, I guess that, that's my first little, this first little piece here is that, to, to let that go is, is empowering. Um, to not feel like you have to uh, share something that you found, even if it's amazing, even if it's great. Um, it, it is not always worth the, the battle, <laughs> I guess. But this is where I want to get into this analogy because it's something that I've only recently thought about. And for me, it's kind of in this aha uh, type of moment. And this, this fits in this conversation in this way. Um, let, me, let me take just a second to try and uh, forerun this enough that I can present it well. So the frustration comes, I think, in this situation that I'm talking about of trying to convince other people of something. Uh, the frustration comes from the recognition from your point of view that that other person is playing with a short deck, you know? They are, they're missing some piece, and because of that, they are limited. And we have this, you know, if you're a thinking type, you have this aversion to limits, I think, uh, to, to always wanting to be pushing the limits of knowledge, of experience, of, of everything in that way. And so to come across someone who has a book that they carry with them that tells them, you know, what, what the world is like, you know, you feel like they're somehow missing something. And that they're that they're limiting themselves, and because of that, they're not going to have the the experiences that you put stock in, um, that you've had that have been uh, fulfilling. 
Uh, and it's this kind of limitations, I think, is, is the frustration. And, you know, you could look at a person or you can look at a society. You know, we could look at our world today and we can see how limited we are because of our, um, our cultural uh, foundations and these, these concepts that we just towed around with us without ever analyzing. And uh, it puts us in this place where we are less adaptive and... Uh, you know, this is just the interpretation, right? That uh, we're, we're limited. So this meditation on limitation, I guess, is really what I, what I wanted to share. And the analogy that, I, that I've come to, uh, there's actually a couple of them. So I'll, I'll try and approach this from a couple different directions and, and, and try to reveal uh, this picture that I'm trying to paint with these different analogies. So uh, in, in a lot of the earlier podcasts, you'll hear me playing and... Uh, I've gotten a lot better now at uh, the uh, the Native American flute and the shagohachi Japanese flute and all these little bamboo flutes. And the reason why I picked those up in the first place uh, is because they were so simple, they were so easy to be creative with. So in their in their limited uh, what they what they could do because of that limitation, they are a lot of fun. They are great instruments for creativity because there's a lot fewer mistakes to be made um, because the system is so limited. Uh, with a five-hold flute, you have five notes, and those notes are already put in a scale, uh, like a pentatonic minor scale, a five-note um, minor scale, so that everything sounds good together. So because of that limitation, that instrument is, is powerful. It is a, a powerful tool for expression. And so here's, here's the first little analogy that, uh, you know, this is, I'm talking about music in, in, in one sense, but really what I'm talking about is life in general, that there is this, this inherent power in definition and limitation. And I wouldn't go so far as to say that that is the ultimate uh, thing to, be, to, be, uh, to strive for, but there is a recognition there that uh, someone... You know, that, that's my analogy here. You might come across people that are playing flutes with ten holes or five holes or one hole, and you look at that poor, that poor person with a one-hole flute, and you just shake your head because you know how many, how many notes that they might be missing, uh, how many different songs they'll never play. Yet, uh, I mean, there's, there's musicians, old blues musicians, who played one-string instruments with a slide and are so expressive and just... You know, don't uh, think that because the, the number of crayons is limited, here's a totally different analogy now, that uh, you're not going to be able to be creative with them. Almost, you know, the limiting of the palette is what creates this artistic awareness. So, you know, I don't want to say too much here, but I think that you're, you probably pick up on what I'm saying is that, you know, when you come across someone who, uh, whose views are so limited, whether it be, a, you know, a, a friend or a parent or whatever else, uh, the limitation, you might see extra holes that they're not seeing, but just because you have a 12-hold flute and they have a 5-hold flute doesn't mean that you need to go drilling holes in other people's, <laughs> in other people's uh, music because, you know, you take a 5-hold flute that's set up in a certain way. That's, that's the whole idea here is that uh, you take a 5-hold flute and there is intention and uh, a, a logical sense to how all of those notes play together. And if you feel like uh, that's not enough and you just start putting putting these extra holes from other flutes on it, uh, well, for one, they're going to be a lot harder to work with because they're not going to fit together in this composition. 
uh, as, as well. You might find new ways to be creative with it, but you're, in a, in a sense, by adding to music, you don't always improve it. And uh, in another way, uh, so any philosopher kind of wants this uh, imaginary flute that is, uh, has as many possible holes as there are and is the flute itself. And it's like taking a, taking a piece of wood and drilling so many holes in it that there, there is no more flute anymore. And that's a, that's a great uh, exercise. It's something that I've tried to do myself in trying to chase down every little rabbit hole and put every little piece together. Um, but in the end, you find that you're you're holding just fragments of wood, and you you're not even you're not even really left with an instrument anymore. And you have to still uh, find ways to create a system uh, out of these out of these fragments if you're going to play any music at all. So that's the my little analogy here, this sort of musical analogy uh, taken another way. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just interesting this this music this uh, this empowerment by limitation. Uh, I'm talking about a very simple instrument right now, a five-hold flute, which I think is an easier uh, is an easier place to start because it, it shows that limitation even on this really boiled down uh, scope. But um, I'm just going to share this because I think it's interesting. I mean, one thing that I've learned recently uh, in playing music and kind of learning music theory is that our entire system on which Western music is based, there's only 12 notes. <laughs> there are only 12 notes in Western music. And there's all different ways to be creative with them, to uh, put them in these different chords and, you know, play, you know, playing multiple notes at once to kind of get these new chords and playing them, you know, long and short in time and all of these different ways to use these same, uh, you know, mixed metaphor, these same 12 crayons to make all of our pictures. And so even there, you know, we can, we can look and say, aha, you know, like we as Westerners with our music, we're missing all the things music could be because we're so locked into our un, unexamined uh, cultural foundations. Again, uh, I think I said that earlier. Um, so people who, who, who hear music and see guitars and all these instruments, there's, there's really no concept that they are limited because um, they're, they're almost magical in the way, uh, you know, if you go back and listen to the, a podcast I recorded um, last year about the silent guitar, um, it's kind of that idea. It's this magical gateway, but uh, it is the limitation in itself that you have to draw the line somewhere that allows it to play the music that it does. And so one view of it is to get in people's faces about it and go to a great, uh, you know, concert pianist and say, yeah, you can play that really well, but, you know, there's all these other types of music and you can't play, you know, the Indian sitar or the, you know, that's the thing. If you go to India, their uh, scales are different. They, they've picked different conventions with which to build their, um, you know, the number of crayons in their box are, are different. Uh, they're a little bit different shades but they all work together in their, in their composition. So it's, it's as if to go to a, a brilliant musician and call them out because they, they don't get the whole picture. But what I'm saying here, again, that analogy with uh, how many holes can you drill in a flute before it's not a flute, uh, where does that kind of thinking end, you know? So music can be all these different things, life can be all these different things, but what, what is the... Uh, it's fun intellectually. It's fun to to see a bigger picture and you know just uh, be in awe. And I think there's nothing wrong with being in awe. But I'm, what I'm saying is that once that awe is had, we still come back and we build a new system. 
And even if it now has 13 notes, it still is limited. And so um, getting down off my soapbox here, because I'm not trying to really convince you of anything other than just to share this concept that I've had lately, because you know, I'm using these musical analogies, but it really uh, it, it comes from these people that I've increasingly met and talked to. And like I started out, you know, in the old days, sitting down with friends who I didn't, you know, we didn't share the same, uh, we, we were playing out a key, put it that way. You know, we, were, we each had our instrument and we were making great music with it. But when we got together, it didn't jive. And... Um, I guess here's another little analogy. I mean, these are all just going to be analogies because, uh, you know, you can take take them and do with them what you will. But I found now that, uh, really using this flute analogy, uh, five, five notes, you know, and I have my five and you have your six or whatever it might be. And there's certain ones that just don't sound nice together. Uh, you know, if you have someone else who's playing a flute that is in a, in a key that is good with your key or the same key, you know, you can get on great together. And when you go to church, uh, you're all there with all of these instruments that are tuned in the same way. And that's why you can make this beautiful community music together, everyone playing these same notes. And you get that, uh, you know, black sheep in there with the out-of-tune uh, instrument. And that's, you know, where when the eyebrows get raised and people get uh, edgy and... Uh, that person can go and take that out-of-tune instrument. I mean, all of this is relative is really what it comes down to and go make their own beautiful music, but it just might not fit. So I guess what I'm getting at here is, you know, when you're with someone else and you recognize there's these certain sour notes that just don't, that just don't work with the music you're playing, uh, I guarantee you just because of the way that um, the system works that there are notes that you have that do sound good together. So... It's, it's less about trying to make the whole thing work together as much as, as making the music play with what you have. Uh, you know, if you, if you have your flute tuned in one way and someone has theirs in another and they have a note that you don't and it just doesn't sound good, the, the wrong way to do it is to drill a new hole in your flute or to dr drill a new hole in theirs, I guess. Uh, the better way is to find, well, which ones do overlap. And in doing that, you might find that you can make great music together. <laughs> uh, wow, preachy Ryan. Um, I don't know, but that, that's kind of the feeling that I've had. And um, to put this in a more concrete concept, I, I just recently revisited a, a really old, great friend. Uh, not really old in that he's 130, really old as in I grew up with him and haven't seen him for 10 years. And it was one of these situations where there came a point when uh, we were just... Uh, both in the for the same reasons but just in different directions you know trying to to hunt down for ourselves what what is going on here you know what are the what are the answers and kind of going in different ways we decided that we just weren't going to play together anymore and it was kind of this mutual thing and so this is where i'm tying this back to a more concrete uh example is that man i hope this is all recording yay <laughs> sometimes it doesn't i've done that before um that when I, when I sat down with this uh, friend again more recently, what was empowering to me, you know, coming from an analogy like this, is rather than trying to, uh, to blow that person up and have them see this bigger musical theory or whatever, I mean, I'm so stuck in this music analogy just because it's, it, it's what has opened this up to me and what makes sense. I'll get into a couple, a couple others uh, in a little bit, but 
you know, rather than trying to just blow that person up and get them to see all these things and even try and point out this connection that I'm making now, I mean, the, the thing that for me was so valuable was to just listen and to just feel and to just groove. That's the thing. Like, when someone else is playing their music, if you're quiet, uh, you know, if you're not uh, in that same woo way, if you're not forcing your opinions on them or yourself, that's the other thing. If you're not in there with this internal hum, you know, it's like going to a to a symphony and you're trying to hum a different tune in your head and it's just not meshing. You know, when you're quiet and you just open yourself up, you can hear all kinds of performances going on all around you uh, all the time. And if you're going to play together, you know, play on those notes that, that work. And so when I sat down with this person, it, you know, one way to look at this is that it's like a deceptive type thing, but I don't feel that way. It's not like I was um, intentionally misleading this person, but when, when there was something that was brought up that I knew that I could talk about in a language that, that fit a system we both understood and uh, could talk about concepts in, in kind of a in a way that fit both of our systems, not trying to force these new pieces into the, into another person's composition, but just kind of playing those notes. We had a, we had an amazing conversation and we both came out of it, I think feeling, you know, reawakened to that friendship that has been 10 years missing. And, uh, and I think that this, that this is part of it, that this, um, this understanding that there are, uh, you know, I, I kind of started this conversation with this, this, this musing on, um, on information at all and you know the, the the questing for the the knowledge of everything and if you let that go and you just uh, you just jam <laughs> it's uh, it's a lot more enjoyable and really again I don't think there's any other way to do it because even the the best uh, shaman or anyone who just goes completely off the map and finds this new knowledge like when they come back the the real skill of a, of a artist or a you know, a teacher or anyone is to, is to go out, find this new, just uh, all these huge things that don't fit and come back and then break them into these little pieces that work with the music that everyone's already playing. Uh, I don't know. So there's that. I guess uh, I'll share just a couple other little metaphors that kind of drive towards the same uh, thought process. But um, circles, I've been thinking a lot about circles and how... Uh, you know, to an extent, everybody is a circle. Everyone, uh, they define their world and what's possible in these uh, concrete symbols, myself included, uh, everybody. Um, the only way to have any knowledge of yourself and where you're at is to have, um, I mean, here's the analogy. Is you have a, if you just have a white piece of paper that extends forever, you, you, you have no points of reference. You have no way to know where you are. And because of that, there's the, cre the creativity is limited. But as soon as you draw a circle, you now have a point of reference. Uh, you have an inside and an outside. You know, you, you put your finger in the circle and you can, you can measure all these distances and triangulate. You have this reference. And from that, I feel, is, is art and is creativity. It's all of this uh, relativity, this, this reference. And so to say that we should have no references, that we should just blow the whole thing up, is to miss the power of the limitations. I think that's probably what I'm going to call this podcast, you know, the power of limitation, because it is, um, it is part and parcel to every creative system that we have uh, and is, is hard to find fault with in that sense. So uh, I feel like I've gone on for a while here and I'm going to have to step inside to make sure Huxie is uh, still asleep. But I'll, I'll conclude with 
another thought that has, uh, well, it's the same thought, but it's another uh, way of expressing it. Um, another, another analogy, another uh, way to approach this, uh, the power of limitations. But uh, in Zen, so Zen is this uh, interesting progression from uh, early Chinese Confucianism mixing with, uh, you know, Taoism coming up and then Buddhism kind of collided with this whole constellation of, of thoughts, this whole Taoist uh, constellation, and then the Buddhism kind of got intertwined and then it's this very psychological meditation of... Uh, I mean, a lot of the things that I talk about here are kind of these Zen concepts. And the, the peak of Zen art, a lot of people would say, is uh, in a form of poetry called haiku. And, you know, a lot of, most people have heard of haiku. It comes to us through our kind of pop culture and in some different and inter interesting ways. You know, we've probably all written a haiku at some time during school. And, you know, you might see one on a Hallmark card or, you know, we don't really think that it's all that amazing. But uh, when you think that, a lot of people, a lot of commentators in the uh, Eastern world have, have really pointed to haiku as this pinnacle of Zen thought. Uh, that, that makes it warrant another investigation of what's going on here. Uh, so a, a haiku is a poem that consists of three lines that has a very rigid structure um, with the syllables that are used. So uh, we basically translate it to a, a five, seven, five. Uh, first, you know, three lines, first one, five syllables, second one, seven, third line, five syllables again. And, uh, you know, coming from the West, it's almost, it's almost shocking how limited this uh, poetry is. We're used to, you know, Shakespearean sonnets and kind of, you know, if you go to any poetry slam and you just see how much diversity there can be with, uh, you know, how to tell a poem or how to how to write a poem. It's really, for us, this kind of, there are no boundaries and there's power in that. But thinking again in this, uh, in this Eastern way, that the pinnacle of Zen thinking is this poetry that is so limited. And uh, that, that really shows the power of limitations here. Um, that you can that you can boil something down to such a small essence and have so much, uh, you know, I would go online and just Google, you know, Zen haikus and just read them. And they're, they're amazing. They just, they transport you. They take you to these little fragments of consciousness and memories and experiences. Uh, traditional uh, Zen uh, haiku poetry uh, follows the seasons. So each, uh, each season, the haikus follow the seasons. And um, I'll just share one that, that always comes to my mind because it was said to be when um, a great Zen master kind of achieved perfection in his, in his Zen uh, thinking through this art of haiku in this poem that goes, the old pond, a frog jumps in, plop. And that's it. That's the poem. That's when, <laughs> when Zen art was said to achieve for a shining moment uh, this, this perfect detachment from any concepts in the, in the fall of a, of a splashing frog. Um, pretty amazing. Uh, I'll just I'll kind of leave it at that. I will, I will say, because I, I broke down what the structure was, you might have noticed that the last line was plop. 
which is only one syllable. Um, that's kind of the English translation, uh, the English kind of getting the feeling across of the Japanese uh, Mizuno Otai, which is uh, the sound of the water, is, is the literal translation of Mizuno Otai, is the sound of the water, but plop, there it is. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, with that, I am going to conclude. And uh, if anyone is listening, I thank you. Um, I thank you for your interest, and uh, I certainly thank my friend for his encouragement. It blew me away. Like I said, my uh, my friend told me that uh, he listened to some of the earlier podcasts and got something out of them. And then I I went back on uh, iTunes and saw some comments, uh, and it really made my day. It just kind of blew me away that these these rambles uh, that people enjoy them. So uh, thank you immensely for uh, for listening and for commenting. And also, there was a question about my website, and I do have a website uh, that is very old. Uh, I, I don't think that if you went there you'd find quite the same flavor of the thoughts uh, of the thoughts expressed, but thinair.com, T-H-I-N-A-Y-R.com uh, has a lot of my old drawings and musings and uh, some pretty ridiculous writing and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, I will leave it there and um, until next time.